one of the things we know is that the jail growth in this country is 100% attributable to cash bail over the past 20 years. So jail growth from one end of the country to the next has been because we have been increasingly holding more and more people in jail pre-trial because they can't pay bail. On any given day, about half a million people are locked in jail, but not yet convicted of any crime. The most common reason, by far, is an inability to pay cash bail. It's the main driver of mass incarceration. What is cash bail? How should it work in theory? And how does it work in practice? Today, we're talking with Robin Steinberg. She's the founder of The Bail Project, a nonprofit that advocates reforms to curb mass incarceration. We discuss her early days as a public defender, what bail looks like in the court trenches, and how policy choices today can make the future of criminal justice better or worse tomorrow. I wouldn't let Robin leave the studio before answering all of my questions, and no reforms needed to that policy. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Robin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm curious why you decided to become a public defender. You know, I went to law school thinking I was going to do women's rights litigation. And uh, I was very much captured in the moment of the civil rights movement and the wave of feminism that was sweeping the country and some of the issues that we were battling over. And I went to law school thinking that's what I was going to do. And in my second year of law school, I wound up working with women in prison in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, which is a maximum security prison in New York for women. And over the course of that year, as part of that clinical program in law school, I began to really get to know the women I was working with fairly intimately. I heard their stories. I carry their stories with me still. And they talked a lot about the criminal legal system and their experience in it and how they felt railroaded by it. And it was unfair. And everybody was um, from low-income communities. Almost all the women that I met with and worked with were women of color. And they hated their public defenders. They hated the system. And it all just sort of piqued my interest about what was going on in the criminal legal system. And so I then decided to give it a try. And in my third year of law school, joined the criminal defense clinic, uh, step one foot into a criminal courthouse in New York City and never turned back. When did you know you wanted to be an attorney? Oh, I don't think I knew that for a very long time. I was not I was not that kid. I wasn't necessarily even college bound. Um, I was a wildly rebellious, disobedient kid, um, always pushing for social justice, always pushing for change. I think I was somebody who was wired for whatever reason I am to always identify more with the underdog than with people in power. So the idea of becoming a lawyer was not something that came naturally to me. Um, it was really in thinking about if I wanted to advocate for women in particular, how could I do that with the biggest impact? And I saw getting a law degree as a tool, not so much an intellectual exercise and certainly not a path my family had charted for me, more of this is going to be a tool I can use uh, to make real social change. And that was the intent in going to law school. And I've been lucky enough to be able to use it for just that. And after you graduated from law school, you went straight into the public defender's office? Straight into being a public defender in New York City. Mm -hmm. What is a typical day like for a public defender? So the first rule is there is no typical day, mostly because each and every client is an individual with uh, individual issues and struggles and strengths and weaknesses and um, their cases that they're charged with demand different levels of attention and, and work and advocacy. You know, the one thing that was common was it was busy and there it you had the feeling that you could never do enough. At least I had that feeling. 
no matter how many hours I worked, no matter how hard I worked, I felt like there was always more I could do. Um, you want to try so hard to fight for your client's freedom. You want to try so hard to bring some justice into the system. You want to try so hard to level out power um, in a system that's just created to grind up my clients from low-income communities and people of color. And so you always felt like there was not enough you could do, but your day was hectic, frenetic, uh, exhausting, inspiring, uh, depressing, exhilarating, always, every day, all the time in a whirlwind of activity. How many cases would you be handling at a typical moment? Well, it was not unusual as a public defender, particularly back then, to have 100 open cases at a time. Um, obviously, you know, people's cases lasted a long time. Some required more work and less work. But you had 100 people on your mind at a, any given time. And on any given day, how many would you typically kind of put your hands on? Uh, it depends what you were doing, but easily 10. 10 or so. Mm-hmm. You could do that easily in a day. That's a lot. It's a lot. Do you have any early cases that you worked on that have stuck with you over time? You know, I remember most the case I did when I was in the clinic my third year in law school because it was a, a teenager who had borrowed a car for a joyride, and he was charged with actually stealing the car, although that wasn't the intent. And it was the first client that I ever really worked on in criminal court, and so, of course, I put everything into it I could um, and got to know him, got to know his family, wrote a motion asking for his case to be dismissed in the interest of justice and got to really dig deep and know him really well um, and visit him both at his home and he would visit me at law school. And so there was some proximity to his life and his to mine. Um, and over the course of that case, the case ultimately got dismissed. So of course you love to remember the victories, even though the reality is you remember most of your losses much more than the victory. But that first case really made me understand how important it was to get to know your client in a very broad and very deep way because the, because the closer you got, the better advocate you could be. So I want to get to talking about the Pale Project, which you're the CEO and the founder of, mm-hmm. but maybe to set the stage a little bit, could you sure. give us kind of a Bail 101? What sure. is Bail and why was it created? Maybe okay. to start off with. So Bail was um, actually created to be a form of release. Right? So when somebody gets arrested, but before there's been any finding of guilt or innocence, um, we have an American cash bail system, but bail is supposed to be set um, at an amount of money that somebody can actually afford to pay. And the reasoning was simple. The reasoning was um, if you set cash bail in the amount somebody can actually afford to pay, given all their circumstances, they can pay it and it will give them some skin in the game. It'll give them a reason to return. The theory was it was the incentive that made people come back to court. And then at the end of a case, assuming you make all your court appearances, bail money comes back to you. So right, you get it all back at the end of the case. That's what bail was intended to do. The reality is in America, the cash bail system uh, grew as our prisons and jails did, as our criminal legal system did, as our police forces did, um, grew to become an amount of money that gets set in a pretty rote way. In some jurisdictions, it's literally a bail schedule, so it has nothing to do with your individual ability to pay. Um, And bail became completely unaffordable for most people. And most people coming into the state-level criminal legal system are from low-income communities. And so bail, whether it's 500 or 1,000 or 1,500, is simply out of the reach for most Americans. And particularly when you are making decisions about whether to feed your child, keep a roof over your head, or pay your cash bail. People can't afford to pay cash bail. And as that number went up and people couldn't make it, more and more people stayed in jail. Uh, It was really the beginning of the march towards mass incarceration. 
So I'm going to come back to in a little bit of detail unpacking kind of empirically and factually what we think is happening. But let's go through sort of the theoretical ideal, maybe a little bit kind of step by step. So if I get arrested, when kind of walk me through the timeline of when, like, when does the bail decision get made? Who's there? What are the criteria in theory at first? Sure. So I wish there was a theory. I wish there was a uniform way to describe this problem. So here's the problem. In the United States, criminal justice is extraordinarily local. So it is driven by local and state laws, ordinances, culture, and practice. So in some jurisdictions, you're going to get booked into the jail, and a bail schedule will tell the sheriff how much bail to put on you, and that will be set right at the very beginning before you ever see a judge, before you see a public defender. In some jurisdictions, you're going to wait for 24 hours in a jail cell, and then you're going to see a judge and a defender, and bail's going to be set right after an argument. So it really depends on where you are. But some kind of bail determination, whether it's a hearing, whether you have counsel, whether it's done by schedule, whether it's not, that varies. But bail will be set as soon as you're booked into a jail. That's how people get held. But how long that process takes will depend from place to place. Do you have any sense of kind of the numbers here of how long somebody might stay in jail before they're actually charged, convicted? Again, it varies from state to state, county to county, uh, and jurisdiction to jurisdiction. You know, when I first started working in Oklahoma, people didn't see their public defenders for almost two weeks. Uh, It was not uncommon for nobody to actually have a charge filed for a week. So they would get booked in, the police would bring them in on a charge, bail would get set by the sheriff, and then a week would go by before the prosecutors would even file charges. That's going to vary from place to place. In some places, it's a very long delay. In some places, it's very short. You know, where I practiced and grew up in New York City, it was pretty much 24 hours from the time you got arrested till the time you got your charges, your public defender, and bail got set. So if you're a judge trying to make a decision about whether to detain someone or not, what are the criteria that go into that? Varies from state to state and statute to statute. And pick pick a state if you want. New York is the one, obviously, I practiced in the most, but um, there are criteria listed that judges are supposed to consider before setting bail. One of those important critical criteria that actually helps it meet constitutional standards is whether you have the resources to pay that amount of bail. So what your financial ability is should be part of the consideration, right? If you're from a low-income community, bail should not be set at the same levels if you're affluent. Um, in, In fact, there's very little done to make that determination. It's one of the problems with the bail system generally in this country, and it's been the subject of a lot of litigation, um, which is bail amounts get set by schedule with no regard to how much money you have or what your resources are. Judges will also look at um, your previous history and whether you've got um, a history of coming back to court and not coming back to court. They may look at the seriousness of the charge in determining what the bail is. Um, they will look at a variety of factors. And is a theory that something like how serious the crime is is supposed to be related to how likely somebody is to show back up in court? Yeah. So depending on where you are in New York, which explicitly rejects dangerousness as one of the criteria for considering bail, there is a belief that the more serious the case, the more likely you're going to be to avoid uh, prosecution. I don't think there's any evidence or data to bear that out. I think that is one of the many myths that sort of exist that hold up our criminal legal system. But I think that is part of the reason that people think, well, they won't come back to court. They're charged with something serious. Why would they come back to court? The reality is people come back to court. And I assume that's the primary reason. If you thought somebody was dangerous, that would be reason enough to detain them. 
Some states don't allow that. Some states do allow that. That can be a criteria in some places and not in other places. Like I said, New York has a long, I think, incredible progressive history of rejecting dangerousness as a criteria because it's impossible to predict. And so that was recognized decades ago by the statewide bar associations. And even in the recent reform, the advocates really valiantly fought against, including, you know, the prediction of dangerousness in the statute. So if you're the judge trying to set the dollar amount, again, I, I keep going back to like, in theory, I guess what you should be doing here is thinking about what's just enough dollar amount that it becomes too much to lose, that it's going to force the person to come back. And so you want it to not be too high, too low. That's the theory, theory. right? That's the theory. The other thing about the, I just want to say also going back to the the dangerousness criteria, right? One of the things that's always an interesting struggle in these conversations is that people forget that bail gets set when somebody is still presumed innocent and when there's been no evidence actually put forth. And we don't know whether this person is guilty or not guilty. I'm always fascinated by talking to very smart, very capable people who inevitably go, yeah, but what if he's charged with this? I'll say, what about that is different? It's a charge that's been brought by government. There's been no proof. There's been no evidence. There's been no hearing. There's been no findings. It is just a charge which really does not have any legal significance other than you have been arrested and charged. Whether you're guilty or innocent is yet to be seen. And in this country, we have a really, really deep... Um, understanding at this point of how many people have been sent to prison and jails who are not guilty. Um, And so I'm always reminding people that we're having a conversation about bail. You were talking about a process that's happening before there has been a finding of guilt. And quite possibly, there is no finding of guilt to be had. And if I'm right about this, a lot of the statutes are supposed to have the judges take into account whether the individual is able to pay the bail, at least in theory. In theory, there's supposed to be some uh, attention paid to the financial ability of somebody to pay bail. Ideally, how would you go about figuring that out? You know, I think that the defense lawyers can bring facts forward that would indicate where somebody's financial resources are. You can imagine different strategies for this, right? If somebody is receiving public assistance, for example, you can pretty much guarantee that they are indigent and living on the margins and in poverty. If people are receiving public benefits, right? If people have substantial debt, I mean, there are things that you can really think about to calculate what somebody's ability to pay is. But the whole thing is premised on the idea that the money is what makes people come back to court. And that's where the mythology, right, (laughs) begins and ends. Actually, it's not money that makes people come back to court, even though I understand why it has an intuitive um, ring of truth to it. It simply is not borne out by the data. Why do you think people do go back to court? Most people come back to court because they're required to do so. Most people come back to court because they respect the process. They may not respect everything that happens in the criminal legal system, and honestly, having toiled in it for over 35 years, it's very hard to, but they respect the process. So most people will come back because they're told to. And by the way, nothing gets better when you don't come back to court. So if you don't come back to court, a warrant gets issued. And people understand that what that means is things get worse for you. They get worse for your family. You can get pulled over for a traffic ticket and get brought in on a warrant, right? Somebody can knock on your door in the middle of the night and arrest you. Like, nobody wants to live that way. It just makes it harder. It makes your case more difficult. It makes you more vulnerable. So people come back to court because they respect the process. How the actual moment of the prosecutors, the defendants, the judge kind of talking about bail, can you give a sense of how that actually tends to happen in practice now? 
Um, it varies from state to state and county to county and jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But it is generally a very short I mean, people call it bail hearings. It doesn't even look anything like what you think about as a hearing or a trial. It's generally an argument. Um, you know, the prosecutors will recommend bail. The defense lawyer will argue on the other side about why that bail is too high or why bail shouldn't be set at all, why this person should be released on their own recognizance, and then a judge will make the decision. The data is pretty clear that judges listen most often to what prosecutors have to say in that context, even though prosecutors have the least amount of information about the accused. So I always found that odd, except that that's how the process has worked for a very long time. And these tend to happen pretty fast. It happens very, very quickly. So how much do you think there's a kind of a design or an implementation problem here? By which I mean, if you imagine a world where the process slowed down a lot and the prosecutor, the defendants, everybody got to really bring a lot of materials to bear do you think judges, like the, the statutes that actually try to encourage them to take into accountability to pay what? Do you think it would work better there if there was just more resources and time? Or do you think the problem is deeper than that? I think better bail decisions would be made on an individual basis, but the system would crash to a halt. There are simply too many people being processed in our criminal legal system annually for any court system to keep up. Um, and the answer is not to build more courthouses and more jails and more police. The answer is to stop arresting people for things we don't need to be arresting them for. The answer is really to begin to think about problem solving in a way that doesn't necessarily have to involve handcuffs and patrol cars and jail cells. Uh, the answer is de-escalating conflict between people. The answer is diverting them away from the criminal legal system. The answer is probably deciding how to decriminalize things that should be decriminalized. And certainly the answer is to stop policing some communities in one way for conduct that's going on in every jurisdiction but only being policed in theirs. So it's a much broader conversation about how you get at that, but I think it is a combination of recognizing what we have done in this country, which is to criminalize race and poverty and mental health and immigration status um, and, frankly, outsiderdom and marginalized communities. We have decided to react to deep social problems um, with our criminal legal system rather than trying to solve them through perhaps the lens of public health or a different kind of lens in solving some of these problems. Only when you do that would you have the resources possible in a criminal legal system to actually have a true, deep, meaningful, adversarial hearing where there would be a finding about whether what bail should and shouldn't be. And we're a long way away from that. I want to get into some of the numbers that you gave in your talk earlier today sure. about just sort of the scale mm -hmm. of individuals that are in mm -hmm. pretrial detention. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe color the imagination sure. a little bit here with what we know about just kind of numerically what's looking to be sure. the case across the nation? So the numbers are staggering. On any given night, more than half a million people sleep in jail cells across the country who have not been convicted of crime because they can't pay bail. On any given year, we think that impacts 2.5 million people um, who simply are in jail cells because they don't have enough money to pay bail. The costs and the damage to that person to spend even a few days in jail are enormous devastating and life-altering in lots of ways. People are subjected to physical and mental abuse in jail. People lose their jobs. They lose their homes. They lose custody of their children. Their immigration status is jeopardized even if they spend only a few days in jail. They actually stand to lose everything. 
jail is a violent, dehumanizing, horrible place to be, whether it's the local jail or your state prison. Um, it, it wreaks havoc on people's mental and physical health. It impacts their families. It impacts their communities, right? So it is, a, it is an experience. I can't tell you the number of times I stood in front of judges who would say the following, counselor, I don't know why you're arguing so hard. It's only a few days in jail. And all I could think to myself, and if it was your child or your husband or your mother, no such words would come out of your mouth. How dare you? Those first few days are critical, right, in terms of setting in motion a whole cascade of devastating consequences for somebody's life. And that needs to be taken incredibly seriously. And that's where pretrial justice is really, really important in thinking about mass incarceration. One of the things we know is that the jail growth in this country is 100% attributable to cash bail over the past 20 years. So jail growth from one end of the country to the next has been because we have been increasingly holding more and more people in jail pretrial because they can't pay bail. So any jail you look at in the country, usually it's about 70% of people, could be slightly less, could be more, that are being held in those local jails because they don't have enough money to pay bail, not because they've been convicted and not because they're doing a sentence. That's the scope and the depth of this problem. I assume this is costing a lot of money, too. Costs American taxpayers about $14 billion a year to house people in jail cells who can't pay their bail. If you add in the collateral costs of that cost foster care, eviction, shelters, all the things that you can think about that get caused by pre-child detention, the estimates are it's as high as $140 billion a year that American taxpayers are footing to hold people in jail cells on pre-child detention on bail. So let's talk about the Bail Project now. Okay. What is the Bail Project? So it is a not-for-profit national organization where we are trying to combat mass incarceration one bail at a time and also through working towards long-term systemic change. So the organization has really two components. One is the direct service component, which is we are paying bails for people across the country in various jurisdictions that we choose when they don't have enough money to pay bail, and then working to support them through the process, notify them of their new court dates, and all the while tracking the data to understand what are the different life outcomes that happen for people in case outcomes when they're out of bail, out of jail versus in jail. And the intent of that is to help move along with our partners on the ground and other advocacy groups and grassroots organizations that are doing this work to help add momentum to bail reform um, and to eventually move all in the same direction towards ending unaffordable cash bail in America that we think can be done, you know, by... Um, collecting data at a national level to inform policymakers and uh, decision makers and local elected officials about what pretrial justice could look like. But it also is the direct service part of the organization is a lifeline to people stuck in jail cells. Because while we're all sitting around trying to figure out what the system ought to look like, what the most effective, efficient, and humane pretrial justice system should look like, there are people literally sitting in jail cells right now. And they shouldn't be asked to wait while we figure this out and what the long-term strategy for systemic change should be. So take me back. Let's say we're in the Bronx. Sure. I get arrested. I'm in jail. Mm -hmm. And you're going to send someone on your staff to disrupt the bail process for me. Walk me through. How does that really work? So somebody on the team, which will consist of people from local jurisdictions who know the jurisdiction well um, and have generally been involved in uh, community-based 
change-making either organizations or or campaigns already in the criminal legal system, those local folks will get a referral from the public defender's office uh, or from a community member. They will go to the jail. They'll meet with the client. They'll interview the client. Uh, they will try to ascertain what the uh, contact information is. Is there a way to notify them about their next court dates? They'll unpack a little bit, you know, where they're living and where their roots in the community are. And the bail disruptor will make a decision about whether or not this is somebody that we can pay bail for. Well, I mean, what it, how much are, give a sense of how much bails usually are. I know it's going to vary a lot, but yeah, for a I lot mean, of folks might have no intuitions at all. Sure. So we, we have paid bail for people at a $500 level, a $1,000 level, uh, $2,500, depending on the circumstances, the jurisdiction, and and what we think the roots in the community are. Sometimes we've actually paid bail along in partnership with other organizations or family members. Um, where everybody puts some of the bail money in together. Communities have been doing that for generations for their loved ones. That is nothing new, right? Churches have been holding barbecues to raise money for bail for people. You know, not-for-profit and social justice organizations have been raising money for bail funds for a very, very long time for particular political actions, right, or in response to particular things. The thing that's about our, our fund is that it's a revolving bail fund, right, and so we really think about not lasting forever because our goal is to put ourselves out of business, but to really think about how do we sustain this fund and the only way you sustain the fund because the money comes back at the end of the case is to make sure your clients come back to court. You can only make sure they're going to come back to court if there's a way to notify them about their next court date. So that becomes a critical part of the equation. Do you have a way for us to notify you? Are we going to be able to get you your next court date and remind you about when it's time to come? People's cases can pend in the legal system for weeks or months or years. And so to expect everybody to be able to remember their court dates without those frequent reminders is a little bit like asking, you know, me to remember my next dental cleaning appointment, which I couldn't tell you what it is, even though I know I set it up. And you also help with things like actually getting to court, child care. Can you say a little yes. bit more about the other types of, of support course. services? So once a bail disruptor has identified somebody that we can pay bail for and we have a way to notify them about their court dates and contact them, they will also work with them during the pendency of the case should obstacles arise that might prevent them from coming back to court. So in lots of jurisdictions, particularly rural jurisdictions, we see transportation being an enormous obstacle. It may be somebody has experienced a health crisis. It may be somebody's having a daycare problem and they don't have any place to put their kids when they have a court date. Their bail disruptor becomes that person they can notify, and then the bail disruptor really gets to work trying to solve that problem with them and figure out a way to sort of get rid of the obstacle that might prevent them from coming back to court. And on the cash part of this, go back to that for half a second. Let's say the bail that gets says for me is ten thousand dollars. I'm not usually have to pay the full ten thousand, right? I mean, isn't this where the bail bond industry and other things come into motion to pay only a fraction of that? So we are not part of the bail bond industry, and we are a not-for-profit. Um, the bail bond industry is a for-profit business entity that sets out to make profit off the ca- American cash bail system. So in some jurisdictions, we would have to pay the whole amount, not the 10%, because we are not bondsmen. And so that we're very clear about that. In some jurisdictions, you as a not-for-profit bail fund or actually somebody who's a resident can actually pay 10%. So again, that varies from place to place. And this is a place where, at least I didn't have like great intuition to this before, but reading studies, like there was one out in Philadelphia, I think, that had bails that even like $500 or so that the 
percent that was being asked to pay, ten percent, it was like fifty dollars, and that was more than vast swaths of individuals could pay. Yeah, it may as well be five hundred. It may as well be five thousand. It may as well be five million for lots and lots and lots of Americans. I think that is a fact that is lost on judges often. Um, that when they're setting bail, they're setting it from their perspective, which is, oh, what's the big deal? It's $500. It's $1,000. You're talking about people who are living in under-resourced communities who are often living on the edge and in poverty, and they have to make decisions about whether they're going to buy food for their children, keep a roof over their head, right, or pay their cash bail money. And so people will not use their money for that, and they'll sit in jail rather than lose their home or feed their children. So it sounds like when you're interviewing individuals to make a decision about whether you use mm-hmm. the bail fund on them or not, you're doing you're doing a lot of vetting around whether they're likely to show up again. I mean, it seems like you're getting a little bit more space and details to know whether someone's likely to come back. I'm curious your thoughts on, let's just say you got rid of cash bail altogether. So you start to now have the population that, that don't meet those features of having good locations to be remind them and things like that. What do you, what do you think about for that failure to appear rate? Do you think this is something that's going to get notably worse? I think if you have effective court reminders and you have a way for people to reach out, should they have an obstacle, I think you'll still see the overwhelming majority of people coming back to court. You know, New York city is a really great example. New York city has continually decarcerated more and more and more and more people. And three quarters of the people now that come into the criminal justice system in New York City are released on their own recognizance with no conditions, no cash bail. Um, And I believe the return rates at last measure were 86% of people came back to their court dates. So that's a pretty good return rate. Um, And that's with no conditions at all and no cash bail. So I think People can rest assured that as long as people have, again, effective court reminders are critical here um, and support and connection to services. So the other thing we didn't really talk about is, you know, our bail disruptors will work with clients to connect them to necessary services should they need them. So if we have a client who's getting out of jail who we may have a way to contact, but they don't have stable housing, they are going to need referrals, right, to ways to find stable housing that may be for the night to find out where the nearest shelter is. It may be a way to go to a legal service organization and ask for help getting back into housing. It may be helping with a public housing application, but um, there are other services that clients need. And that's something that the bail disruptors try to connect with already existing organizations and social service providers in given localities that can help our clients with those issues. So for the people that you do pay the bail on, do you have a sense of sort of percentage-wise how many actually show back up at court? So our proof of concept was the Bronx, where 95% of clients came back for each and every court appearance over a 10-year period. As we roll out these sites across America, we're actually collecting data in each site. Um, And we spend that first year really digging deep into what are the obstacles and what prevents people from getting back to court and how can we um, help make those obstacles disappear So our first data set from one of our inaugural sites came out of St. Louis recently. And what was interesting to us was the data tracked very closely our experience in the Bronx, uh, where 53% of cases were dismissed when the bail project paid bail uh, for those clients. And the return rates to court were clients in St. Louis, I think, made 94.4% of their court dates. So the results were very closely tracking the Bronx. We don't yet have the data from the other sites. Uh, We just launched a year and a few months ago, so we're still doing that. But in the first um, really good data set we had, those are the results that we're seeing. How do you decide 
where to go? Well, first of all, how many sites are you present at? So we're in 11 sites currently. Uh, we're about to open two more in the next month. We look across the country and we're attempting to create um, what we call a representational portfolio, meaning we're trying to select sites across the country that are representative of particular issues so that what we're learning actually can be transferable to similarly situated localities and jurisdictions. So, for example, what we're learning in Oklahoma may have some relevance to what, what Arkansas is doing around bail reform, and it may not have a lot of relevance about what's happening in New Orleans. Um, and so we're trying to pick sites that are representative um, when we select those sites, we look at what's the size of the pretrial population, what kind of impact can we have, who are our partners on the ground that are going to work with us to make sure that this is effective and successful and, and working well and moving towards long-term systemic reform. Uh, what are the obstacles on the ground? Where is the opposition going to come from if it's going to happen at all? Are there things about the way laws are written or bail is done that create too much of an obstacle for us to go into that site? Um, but I would say partnerships um, are deeply, deeply important. Uh, who we can connect with. There are a lot of people doing fantastic work on the ground around bail reform and criminal justice reform advocacy. We want to be able to partner with those folks. Not always possible, but we try as hard as we can to make sure we have those understandings and try to see how viable the site is and what it might represent. In Oklahoma, we're only bailing out women. That's going to be relevant for what it takes to decarcerate women around the country, right? In um, some jurisdictions, there are very rural counties, and we're looking at what does that look like? What are the obstacles that come up for those clients when they get bailed out to get back to court? And, you know, it doesn't look like the Bronx, right, where you can make sure people have a metro card and they can get back to court relatively easily, right, taking the subway. You have different challenges and obstacles in other places. So we're trying to select a representative sample. You don't have to name cities on this, but sure. I'm curious your like easiest site from an implementation standpoint, and in contrast with the hardest site to do it out, to actually pull it off, to actually get it in the field and operational. You know, we have found a few things I think that are pretty consistent. Sites can operate best when we have um, partnerships with jail administrators and access to jail and access to our clients to be able to do face-to-face -face interviews for sure. Um, referrals work more smoothly if there is an organized public defender system willing and able to make those referrals very, very quickly so people can get out before all the harm and damage begins. Um, you know, we look at what the average cash bail amount is. If we're in a jurisdiction where bail amounts are just very, very high, that's probably not going to be very viable site to reach many people and have a lot of impact. And that's not to say that reaching one person isn't impactful. It is. But we're trying to actually scale this and have as much impact as we can. Um, and so that's another thing we might be looking at as we think about it. But organized public defender offices and really firm referral sources are deeply important. Jail access is important. Good partners on the ground is important. And of course, no legal impediments to operating a not-for-profit bail fund. I'm curious the sources of opposition you get. Why do people push back against this? You know, I think for a variety of reasons. I think uh, the bail bond industry obviously has a vested interest in the American cash bail system maintaining itself the way it is. So any disruption that we have a part of in ending that system has implications for their business. Some prosecutors push back against it because they lose their leverage to get people to plead guilty. So one thing we know is that if you're in jail on cash bail, you are much more likely to plead guilty to the thing you were charged with than if you had fought your case from outside. 
Um, and so people will plead guilty to go home because it's just a awful, dehumanizing, terrifying place to be, a jail cell. And so people will get an offer. If he pleads guilty, counselor, he can go home today. Almost everybody will plead guilty whether they did it or not. So prosecutors lose that leverage. But, you know, we haven't seen – mostly people are curious to see what we're learning. Uh, and that's been really great is people are interested in what we're learning, interested in what we're seeing – trying to understand how they might move bail reform forward in their local jurisdictions. And it's going to vary from place to place. It's going to look different from place to place. Um, but certainly what we're learning and what we're sharing around the data and the human stories and the direct service work we're doing is helping people in jurisdictions want to move bail reform forward who do. What's happening in the Bronx today? Ah, so New York State just passed statewide bail reform. Uh, and it, I have to say that if you had asked me you know, in 2007, when we started paying bails at the Bronx Freedom Fund, whether I expected that to happen, I did not. Um, but we are delighted to see that New York has really stepped out in front and passed statewide bail reform that virtually eliminates cash bail for uh, almost every misdemeanor and nonviolent felony charges. Um, you just get released. Under various different kinds of conditions, but cash bail is not the mechanism of, of release that is permissible as of January 2020. So we're excited about that. We think that's going to lead to more and more decarceration. I mean, look, New York City has been decarcerating for years now. Um, they are not only one of the most decarcerated cities, but they're one of the safest cities, which is the point that I think people uh, really need to be reminded of, which is that the evidence so far, the data so far, is that while sometimes bad things happen and there's an exception, the majority of, of the data in the sites around the country show that crime rates don't go up when you decarcerate more people. In fact, the evidence is very compelling, and the data shows that if you hold somebody in pre-child detention, they're 30% more likely to commit a crime when they get out than if they hadn't been held in at all. Um, so pre-child detention actually causes crime, uh, which I think is counterintuitive for a lot of people. And instead, what the data is really showing, I think, and I think led New York City to do such progressive, widespread reform was the recognition that jail is doing more harm than good, uh, that jail itself was creating more crime, um, and that cash bail, the idea that our bail system is built on the idea that cash is what motivates you to come back to court, is a myth. And that myth needed to be deconstructed. And so cash bail needs to be eliminated. Um, and they got not all the way there, but they got close. Um, and so it will be wonderful as they collect data that I'm sure is going to continue to prove the point um, that you can decarcerate people and you can uh, allow them to go back to their communities and their families and their jobs and their lives and their homes. And not only will crime rates not go up on aggregate, they will probably go down. And why do you think they didn't get all the way? So crime is one of those things that um, can, or the fear of crime can turn even the most progressive person into a very conservative person very quickly. And that's really about our ideas about who's in jail and what they're capable of. It's definitely deeply racialized. You know, our racial disparities in our criminal legal system from the beginning of the system to the end of the system are appalling and shocking, and they are present in every stage of our criminal legal system. Arrest, bail setting, sentencing, reentry, probation, parole violations. I mean, it is everywhere. And we have to really grapple with that. 
Um, and when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand this narrative of fear that has been burnished by a lot of people who have vested interests in keeping the legal system at the size that it is. You have a narrative of fear that, unfortunately, our media has stoked for years. Um, and that's not just the sort of press reporting on, you know, the scary crime, the bad crime, the sensational crime. Um, they'll report on that, but they won't report on the 10,000 people that got released from jail in a given locality where no new crime happened. But the one case, the one person that returns to the community, right, and creates another violent crime in that community, um, all the attention goes there. And there's very little balancing of the data. Um, we like to legislate around the exception when it comes to this issue. And I think that comes from a lot of, for a lot of different reasons, but legislating around the exception is a terrible way to, um, create policy. I understand that on an emotional level, but when you are creating policy and laws and you're engaging with a, a system that is supposed to hold up our fundamental values, it's important that rational thought and data control how we move forward. Um, rather than focusing on the exceptional, the scary, the thing that nobody wants to think about, and that happens occasionally, but very rarely happens. Um, and I talk about this all the time. You know, we take calculated risks in our lives all the time, except when it comes to the criminal legal system, um, where we seem to be willing to legislate around the exception, and we seem to be willing to give in to our ideas about fear. And unless we begin to unpack that and grapple with what are we afraid of, marginalized community, people of color, low-income people. What are we afraid of? Why are we afraid of them? Who has burnished that idea in our head that there is fear that we should have? Instead of shifting our lens from isolation and punishment to what do you need and how can we help? When we do that shift, we'll begin to get at some of those answers. And frankly, the ways we define crime. Crime happens all the time everywhere. It happens on Wall Street, right? It, happen it happens every day across this country, and we don't police it. We don't send people to jails and prisons. Um, we come up with different solutions. And it's about time, and I think as we're reckoning with what our criminal legal system has done, that we really begin to think about um, a different way to have restorative justice in this country, a different way to heal communities that have been most impacted and destroyed by the criminal legal system, a way to support individuals that have been through the system who are going to need all sorts of supports because of what the system's done to them and their families and their communities. And I think we're at a moment where we're finally grappling with those bigger questions about how we define crime and who enforces crime and what the sentences look like and who we're targeting and why. And I think underbedding that is obviously economic inequity and, frankly, structural racism that has persisted in this country since before slavery. It's weird to me that if you get pushed back because of a bad outcome, it's like somebody gets their bail paid and they end up committing a crime. Mm -hmm. For someone to think that's an argument against the the bail project or bail reform, it does seem to slip into trafficking into something that's not the theory of what cash bail is about. Namely, it's not about policing dangerousness. If it's all about making sure that somebody shows up to court, yeah. it doesn't seem – like so if you get that pushback, like like where – does that a moment where you can sort of call people out that they shouldn't be using bail for the assessment of dangerousness? That's like a different factor that a judge would be making an evaluation on? Um, it is understandable that when people are caught up in the moment of something terrible happening um, that people begin to justify all sorts of behaviors. Um, 
it's important, I think, that all of us try really, really hard not to let that happen and to take a breath and to remind ourselves that when something terrible happens, it doesn't justify then doing something else terrible, right? And when, what I think, when I think about this, I think about it this way. If we focus on the exception, we're going to legislate around it. If we focus on the exception, we're going to lose the bigger picture and the kinds of injustices and damage that gets done to people in very large numbers every day. You know, when you're in a crisis in your own life, and so I think about it as crisis, right? If you're in a crisis in your own life, you know it's the wrong time to make decisions. It's just the wrong time to make decisions. You're in a swirl of emotion. Your heart may be breaking, not the time to make a decision, right? We seem to lose that. And I understand people that are impacted by something terrible that might happen, that we can't expect them to not get swept up in that emotion of that moment and the heartbreak that they're experiencing. But policymakers, local elected officials, systems players that know better, right? People that are working in this area know that that is an exception and, uh, and almost never happens. So when it does, we have to really, really, really be disciplined about keeping rational thought. That doesn't mean you can't feel for the person. It doesn't mean your heart doesn't break. It doesn't mean you don't feel terrible and reflect on what might have been different. What could you have done different, if anything? But it does mean that it should not then lead to the end of something because one bad thing happened, right? When I was growing up in New York City, parole was virtually eliminated because one person got out on parole and committed a horrific crime, right? And the governor's response was to essentially eliminate parole rather than look at the 100,000 people that got out on parole who didn't commit a horrific crime and were getting back to their lives and entering their communities. So it's really important. And the data helps us here. Um, I don't mean to sound cold and, and disengage from the heartbreak that might happen, but data is really, really a good tool to use in those moments, right? We have used exceptional circumstances to justify some of the worst things we do in this country in our criminal legal system. Solitary confinement, torture, dehumanizing jail conditions, the death penalty for children. You know, we use that fear and that panic at that moment to justify that kind of behavior. And we have a long history of it. So we need to step back and really be really clear. The other thing that's really interesting to me is, you know, if you look, and I've done some research about this, if you look, there have been people that have been bailed out by the bail bond industry for years and years and years, who've gotten bailed out by a bail bondsman, they've been released into the community and have committed a horrific crime. And I've never heard a chorus of voices that we should eliminate the bail bond industry because this thing happened, right? There is a, an acceptance that occasionally terrible things are going to happen and hearts are going to get broken. And there's nothing to do to repair that. And that's hard for everybody. But usually, almost all the time, it's going to go okay. And when you're making calculated risks, that's how we make good decisions. And that's how we make good policy. It's not that we ignore the risks, but we use the data and we make those risks in a very calculated, thoughtful, rational way. And that's what has to happen about bail reform as well. It's still just baffling to me because the risk that's being managed with cash bail is not committing a crime. It's do you show up to court again? Well, Because somebody could pay their bail on their own. I was going to say, and if you're wealthy, you're going to pay your bail anyway and be out on the exact same crime. Because it seems like if you want to have a conversation about what to do to get sort of more stringent on reducing the likelihood that there's going to be another crime before somebody shows up, you want to have a slightly different conversation than a conversation about cash bail, which is about just getting you to show up to court again. 
For sure. Um, and also, it's interesting to me when you watch that conversation happening um, and you want to sort of say, well, you know, that philanthropic organization shouldn't have paid that person's bail, right? When all along somebody charged with the exact same crime and the exact same allegations who had money in their bank account could pay their bail. What we're really then talking about is race and class, right? If if philanthropic dollars are being used to bail people out, right, and you don't agree with that, then it shouldn't actually hold for somebody who has money in their bank account either. And yet the outcry is very unique and very specific. And I do think that undergirding it is sort of our fear of uh, poor people, our fear of people of color, uh, our fear of the other, our fear of marginalized communities, our fear of people that don't look like us or speak like us, or even that we think might not. I mean, one of the things I've been raising recently is, you know, people think the criminal legal system doesn't touch them. And so it's, you know, it's those people. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to think about this. And one of the things I say is, number one, you should care because what goes on in our criminal legal system implicates every one of us, right? What the values are, how we treat people, how we treat people in our community that are marginalized or even despised is a reflection on our values as humans. It's our reflection of how do we treat people with humanity and dignity and respect no matter what the charge. What should our systems look like? But the other thing is, is that people I think mistakenly think that the criminal legal system doesn't touch anybody they know. And I promise you that if they ask the right questions and dig deep enough, they know people who've been impacted by the criminal legal system because it's reach has gone so wide and so far in this country that the new data released this year is that one out of two American families have had an immediate family member locked into a jail cell at some point. One out of two, which means the person sitting next to you that you think was never touched by the criminal legal system may be. That's not to say that communities of color and low-income communities and marginalized communities are not targeted by the criminal legal system. Disproportionately, they are 100%. But it has a far bigger reach than most people think. Um, so be careful about that because it could affect your family too. When it comes to cash bail, what questions do you, you wish that you knew the answer to or had more data on? What should we be doing more research on? Wow. You know, I think, you know, when we think about, again, well, that's a hard question. I wish that we had data that was able to actually show the damage that gets done to people held in jail and pretrial detention in much more specific and deep ways. And that when a judge has to make a decision about whether or not they're setting bail, that that consideration should be part of the equation. Um, I don't think that gets nearly enough attention. I don't think judges are not required to pay attention to it. And I think before bail gets set, assuming I can't eliminate cash bail tomorrow, um, you know, judges ought to be required through some mandate of some sort to analyze not just what they think the likelihood is that somebody will return to court or even the likelihood somebody is going to get rearrested, which in some jurisdictions is allowable, but they should have to look at what is the potential damage to this person and this person's family and this person's community if I do hold them in? That's quantifiable data, right, that they really ought to be able to look at. And if we're asking judges to make full decisions, people that are accused of crimes and their families and their communities are part of the public and their public safety and their safety matters too. Um, and that should be measured if you're going to measure it. Can you talk a little bit more about the holistic defense model? 
Sure. So in 1997, along with a bunch of colleagues, I started an organization called the Bronx Defenders. Um, and what we did was we really grew and developed a particular model of what we call holistic defense that recognized that when somebody is arrested, an arrest is never just an arrest. Um, what an arrest can do, even a minor arrest, is that it can explode somebody's life in all sorts of ways. Certainly when bail gets set, we've already talked about how that might explode somebody's life. But coming into the criminal legal system, even with a minor uh, criminal charge, can implicate your public housing federal financial aid to go to school, your ability to have certain kinds of jobs or jobs at all. Um, and it has a bunch of collateral consequences, right, to being in the system at all that we don't look at enough as public defenders. And public defenders have tra been trained traditionally to just look at the criminal charge, defend the person against the criminal charge, beat the criminal charge or plead guilty or go to trial. But what the holistic defense model did and what we developed at the Bronx Defenders was a very broad way to ask the questions and identify those areas of impact a client might actually have to deal with, and to then provide advocates who work in interdisciplinary teams to address all those issues to protect against those things from happening. Um, it's not that different than the way I think about bail, right? It's about, we think about the bail project as um, stopping incarceration before it begins and stopping those consequences before they happen. Very much like holistic defense was about getting in deep and looking at both what the social service needs are of a client what um, services we can provide them with, but also really looking at where are the areas of impact that this person might have to deal with based on even a minor criminal arrest, and then getting advocates in place very early on to guard against them to make sure that people's lives stay as stable as they can going through a system like the criminal legal system that's so destabilizing. Anything you were hoping we talk about that we haven't yet? So there's a, a relatively popular outcry out there in the field these days about dismantling the system. And I'm all about dismantling the system. Uh, there is virtually no stage in the criminal legal system from arrest all the way to reentry that does not need to be dismantled and reimagined. What's really important for us to recognize, though, is that if we're not vigilant and we're not careful and we're not analytic and we're not rational, what we will do is we will likely create new systems that will recreate the same kind of racial disparities and economic inequities we see in the current one. What do I mean by that? Well, when you dismantle something, you leave a void. And what systems will do just by virtue of the fact that they're systems is they'll recreate themselves if you're not really careful. And there's lots of vested interests, by the way, in keeping systems the way they are and the size they are. So if you create a vacuum by doing away with cash bail, we really need to get to work re-envisioning what a humane and just pretrial system ought to look like. Or we're going to wind up with new systems of oppression and surveillance that will inevitably fall on the backs of poor people and people of color. So when you think about that, you can think about electronic monitoring being one of these things. You put an ankle bracelet on somebody, you charge them to set it up, you charge them as their case pens um, on a monthly fee. Well, you may look like you eliminated cash bail, but all you've really done is move the same kind of economic inequity and the same kind of racial disparities that will inevitably come up from that kind of economic inequity, and you've moved it from a jail cell to an ankle bracelet. And then when you can't afford to pay for it, you can't afford to set it up, you can't afford to pay the monthly fee, you're going to wind up back in jail. And you're going to wind up recreating some of the same systemic injustice that we started with. So it's really important um, that we're vigilant about thinking carefully about what comes next. 
I think any place to start with bail reform has to start with a very, very strong presumption of release, no matter what the charge, that if anybody is going to be held in a jail cell for any reason before they have been convicted, before there has been a process in place to determine somebody's guilt or innocence, that that can only happen once there are real procedural protections in place, that there is a real hearing, an adversarial hearing where the accused has counsel and a right to cross-examine witnesses and put witnesses on the stand on their own behalf, um, and that the government has the burden to prove somebody has to be in jail, not the other way around, but that the overwhelming presumption should be that in the overwhelming majority of cases, people should be released to their community with voluntary supports. That's what the bail project is trying to prove. You can release people to the community without any cash bail, without onerous conditions, without surveillance. And as long as you ask, what do you need? How can we support and give them effective court reminders? They will come back to court and their cases can be adjudicated. And that's really what the model is meant to prove, that community release with voluntary supports will be enough in almost every circumstance. So that you wouldn't even need something like electronic monitoring, potentially. Correct. And that you would not allow new systems to be created like electronic monitoring that might run the risk of recreating the same problems that you set out to end. And that's for those who aren't familiar with electronic monitoring. Can you give a sense of how much it usually costs? Like it is a little surprising that's often put on it can defendants be su- to pay for it. It can be surprising. So the setup fee alone can be, we've seen it as high as $300 for a setup fee. Um, and then there's a monthly charge on top of that. Well, if somebody could afford that, they could have paid their cash bail. Right? We're trying to eliminate money being the thing that determines who's free and who's not. Um, and so if you're asking people to pay for electronic monitoring, you're in the same situation, which is people with money in their bank account can pay for them and get out of jail, and people that don't have money can't. And there you go. You've recreated the same thing again. So it's really important to stay on top of that and vigilant about that um, and to remember that it's not enough just to dismantle. You have to recreate and re-envision and heal And those components are going to be very important for this country to find its way back from decades of mass incarceration and the absolute destruction that we have caused. Do your concerns about electronic monitoring go away if the defendant didn't have to pick up the tab? Um, It doesn't go completely away. I still think that they are degrading and dehumanizing and have all sorts of other problems with them. But certainly you will not recreate the economic disparity there, um, which inevitably is tied to race and gender, by the way, because women are also the least likely to be able to afford bail. For those who want to learn more about the bail project and stay engaged, where should they go? So you can go to our website at www.bailproject.org. You can find any of us on there and feel free to email us and and stay engaged. There'll be all sorts of ways you can do that. Um, And if we're not in your city or town or jurisdiction, we might be coming there in the future. Um, But if not, you can still engage with the central team and the project and we'll help you find ways to do that. Robin Steinberg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to 30,000 Leagues. We hope you enjoyed today's deep dive. This episode was hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Jessica Davidson and Aiden Rasmussen. You can find more conversations at 30,000leagues.com or by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep calm and narwhal on.
if I can tell you the number of people that have come up to me and said, I think I can solve this problem with an app. I, I wish it was that simple. 